Hi everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. We've been talking about the subject of pornography and you remember in the previous episode uh, we started to get practical. We were looking at the book of Proverbs to try and figure out what practical ways the scripture has for us to teach us how exactly to put in place patterns of godliness, patterns of wisdom, patterns of sexual purity within our lives so we're able to stand against this temptation in particular and in fact all others. Uh, We've got now, this is a fourth episode in this little mini-series. If you go back and listen to the first couple, we talked a little bit about the prevalence of this issue, how widespread it is. We talked uh, somewhat about um, the damage it has the potential to do to us personally and our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people um, at a social a social level, excuse me. And um, uh, really what I want to do uh, in this final episode, this is the fourth episode in the series, is to just finish off these practical uh, insights. And um, it's, again, you find the scriptures are rich and deep and full of more than perhaps we realized in terms of striving for the things that the living God wants us to have. He genuinely gives us here all that we need for life and godliness through um, the Lord Jesus Christ who's reconciled us with him. It's not like he's left us dangling out somewhere to try and figure out the way of righteousness on our own. The living God has given us all that we need by his grace to strive for and grow in holiness. And I want to show you a few more things in the scriptures which will, I hope, Lord willing, uh, help you in this particular area dealing with pornography and lust and so on. So without further ado, um, five specific practical uh, things to think about. Number one, get control over the other patterns of your life, the routines of your life, your daily habits, your work habits, your downtime habits, what you do in the evenings, what you do on the weekends. Things that don't seem to have anything specifically to do with temptations to lust, temptations to pornography, have something to do with temptations to lust and temptations to use pornography. And if we get hold of all of the different areas of our lives so that we're living, I think as the NIV puts it in um, Proverbs chapter 1, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life. That's what the book of Proverbs is for. If the whole of our life is disciplined and prudent, we're men and women of integrity, then we will find that that integrity starts to spill over into all the individual specific parts of our lives. The reason for this, well, you can think about it at several different levels, uh, from a theological or, I, I guess, anthropological point of view, the way God has made us, we are holistic beings. Um, uh, we're, we're not just compartmentalized. It's the, the way that human beings are made by God is that here is one person and they have a, a certain set of character traits which tend to manifest themselves in different domains in their work, uh, at school, uh, in relationship with their parents, in relationship with their friends, in prayer, in the way they use their downtime, in what goes on in their minds, in their thought life. All of us, we have a set of character traits and they manifest themselves in those different domains. But it's the same set of character traits that appears or manifests itself in all those different domains. And so what that means is, if we can train our character, then we can start to expect it to have 
uh, an impact in other domains than the one in which we train it. Paul says, for example, that physical training is of some value. Why is that? Well, it's not just that it keeps you fit. Physical training has value because it teaches us to forego short-term pleasure for the sake of long-term benefit. It teaches us to endure hardship. It teaches us to endure pain. It teaches us to sacrifice for the sake of uh, what may be better for us in the long term. And all of those um, characteristics which you've, you exercise on the baseball field or the soccer field or in the gym or when you're out running or whatever it is you do for exercise, all those character traits affect your character which then has impact elsewhere. And what you see in practice then is that uh, people tend to be, let's say, truthful people or people of integrity or uh, liars, people who lack integrity, everywhere. Right? We're all rightfully suspicious of a politician, for example, who's unfaithful to his wife and then who promises to serve his country and his constituents and the citizens who voted for him. I would never believe a guy like that. Why would you? Because you know what he's like. You know how uh, what he thinks of promises that he's made because he's just shown you the one person whom at one point in his life he believed and said in front of everybody in the whole world and the living God that he was going to be 100% committed to. He's now gone and left for somebody else or been unfaithful to. So why would you now believe that he's going to be faithful in serving uh, all these people he's never met who voted him into office? There's no good reason to think that at all. And the underlying uh, anthropological uh, factor that's going on is that individual is just an individual and he has a certain character and that character when it's manifest in one place will then be manifest in another place in a similar way right so that is a long and uh, roundabout way of saying from the point of view of growing in sexual purity and holiness what we need to grow in is self-restraint self-control self-discipline the uh, wise use of every moment of our time. And let me be honest, it's not going to be possible for us to be really self-controlled, really self-disciplined, really wise in the use of our time when we're facing sexual temptation or uh, you know, the opportunity to flip the smartphone out and just cruise through it and see what we find. We're not going to suddenly be able to be godly there in all those ways if all of the rest of the time we're lounging around on the sofa stuffing Cheetos in our face, eating pizza and watching reruns of... I don't know, college football trick plays or something. You know, if, if the way that we use our time and the way that we organise our lives generally is disorganised and dissipated and immature, we're not going to be able to switch on maturity when it comes to sexual temptation. And you see this in the scriptures. I mean, we were looking at the book of Proverbs. I won't reintroduce the way that the book of Proverbs works. I mentioned it in the previous episode. But Proverbs 6, um, verse uh, 20 and following is really striking uh, development of uh, logic in this section where Solomon addresses his son and so this is the wise man our wise father addressing his sons through faith in Christ Jesus I'm going to read it and just narrate how it develops you see my son keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching bind them on your heart always tie them round your neck you notice that it's general what your mum said, what your dad said. Your mum loves you, your dad loves you, they're wise. Well, they're not perfect, but they're wiser than you. So bind their commandments round, their, round your neck and keep them. And then what will happen, verse 22, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you're awake, they'll talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline 
are the way of life. Now what's that talking about? It's, it's talking about every area of our lives. All the things that, especially those of us who are privileged to have uh, godly Christian mums and dads, uh, you can remember things, many of you, that your mums and dads said to you, and they've stuck with you some of those things, and they've guided you through every area of life. And all of us, whether or not that's the experience that we had with our own parents, we have here the wise words of our Heavenly Father directing us in every different area of life, every domain of human endeavour, work and rest and our relationships with our friends and our family and so on. And then notice what happens next. Immediately the next verse, the commandment is a lamp, the teaching a light, the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. That's where we've got to. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and so on and so forth. So what's happened there? What started out as just a general exhortation concerning maturity and stability and wisdom and faithfulness in every area of life that we learn from, whether it's Christian parents or Christian role models or from the scriptures from our Heavenly Father, then suddenly switches and becomes narrowly focused on this one particular domain which as it happens dominates there's at least two or two and a bit chapters of these first nine chapters of proverbs which are explicitly devoted to this one issue of sexual temptation and the imagery suffuses many of the other chapters versus uh, chapters one to nine what's going on is we're seeing that the general pattern of life will be the thing that is manifested in the specific areas of temptation so get control of those other areas of your life. Think about it for a second. How do you use your time when you're working? How do you use your time when you're relaxing, when you're chilled out, when you're, what, I don't know, in the evenings, at the weekends? Because if you're the kind of person who's never really disciplined in work uh, and fritters time away every evening and all day Saturday and all Sunday afternoon, never really doing anything remotely productive, not even your rest is really very restful because it's all kind of dissipated and, and ill-directed. If you're that kind of person, there's not the slightest chance that you're suddenly going to switch on maturity and wisdom and faithfulness and stability and integrity and resistance to temptation when it comes to dealing with pornography. So get control. We all need to get control of all of our lives in that kind of way. Number two, I want to talk about displacement. The um, great uh, minister, theologian Thomas Chalmers once wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I'll just read a quick blurb, uh, uh, extract from the blurb on, uh, I think it comes from Amazon, where the reviewer writes that the Christian faith teaches that man is an enemy of God and doesn't seek him. Romans 3. This short work from Thomas Chalmers shows what is necessary to move us from a life of enmity towards God to a life as a child of God. And what is it? It is knowing, seeing and tasting God as infinitely valuable. Human beings are creatures whose hearts are like, uh, whose hearts, sorry, uh, Human beings are creatures whose hearts, like nature, detest a vacuum. And so, here's the key thing, to expel the sin and selfishness in our hearts, we must fill it with something that is better and more satisfying, namely Jesus Christ. Let's read that last bit again, because that's the crucial moment. Our hearts detest a vacuum. And so, to expel the sin and selfishness in our hearts, we need to fill it with something that's better and more satisfying, namely Jesus Christ. 
Now just think about that for a second. What Thomas Chalmers is saying that is that it's not going to be possible just for us to stop sinning in the abstract. What we need to do is displace that sinful life, those sinful habits and patterns of thought with faithful, godly patterns of thought. Expel those ungodly affections by exploiting the expulsive power of a new affection. And the way that Chalmers characterizes it is our hearts being fixed on Jesus Christ, which of course means faithfulness to Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. Of course it means deep down a love for Christ, but it also means what James would have us uh, understand by faith in Christ. It's the kind of faith that is lived out and practical. And so concretely then, what that means is we've got to start thinking about all the different areas of our lives, particularly those times and occasions where we might be tempted to either just be wasting our time or using it sinfully, particularly in relation to pornography and sexual temptation. What else could we be doing at those times that would be more productive? Uh, the way that Proverbs um, uh, speaks of this is by uh, depicting uh, an alternative to the forbidden woman. She's the woman wisdom. There's a wise woman, a godly woman, a beautiful and faithful woman who is an alternative to us. You think of Proverbs 7, for example, um, and uh, I'll pick it up from verse 4, Proverbs 7, verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So just think about it there. What's, what's being... Uh, uh, placed before us, it's not just keep away from the adulteress with her smooth words. It is fix your eyes and your heart and your affections on this other woman, the woman wisdom. And that imagery operates at a number of different levels, doesn't it? If you're actually married, then it means that from the point of view of our sexual intimacy, well, there you are, there's your spouse, ladies, there's your husband, gentlemen, there's your wife. Fix your eyes on her and not somebody else. If you're not married, you don't yet know the person whom you're going to marry, or you might not yet know the person you're going to marry. You might not know who it is. You might not even know them if you're going to be married. But be in preparation for that person. Be shaping yourself so that you're the most faithful, the most holy, the most godly, the most restrained and loving and uh, focused on her or focused on him person that you can be in preparation for them. You see what we're being urged to do? It's not just stop sinning, it's grow in maturity in all these concrete and specific ways. Now clearly that has some uh, obvious practical implications, especially for people who are married. Um, it has implications for how uh, we ought to spend time with our spouses and so on. I'm not going to uh, huge and obvious glaring detail there, but again, yeah, this is a matter of uh, not just thinking, I need to stop this, but also thinking, I need to embrace this wisdom, truth, love, beauty that God has set before me as a righteous and wise path for life. So that's the second thought. Number three, I want to say a word about accountability groups or accountability partnerships and relationships. In recent years, this has become, I suppose recent decades, this has become some, a bit of a thing um, in evangelical circles and with some justification because it's easy to see, both in biblical terms and also in practical terms, uh, examples in scripture or 
ways in which being accountable to another person could help us to uh, resist particular sinful temptations. Um, you think of the relationship between Paul and Timothy, for example, or um, uh, confess your sins to one another. Uh, and th all these kinds of ex exhortations, you, you get the feeling that in all of them, what you have is uh, relationships where there's openness and transparency and uh, recognition of our own personal failings. It's very clear that Timothy has been very open with Paul about his feelings of inadequacy and so on, not specifically in relation to this issue, I'm just talking about in general. And so there's something potentially very healthy about uh, keeping accountable, asking somebody to keep asking you, are you being faithful in this issue? Are you being faithful in relation to something else, whatever it is? And sometimes people structure these in a more or less formal way. Three or four people might meet up every three or four months or six months or every few weeks or whatever it is just to talk about their lives and to be open with each other and to pray for one another. And sometimes what happens in relation to dealing with a particular sin like like uh, use of pornography, also with other sins sometimes, um, or uh, alcohol addictions, these kinds of things, is people will start having weekly meetings with their accountability groups to keep track of their progress. And all that has the potential to be really helpful, but, and you could probably tell there was a but coming, um, they also have the potential to misfire. Um, what can sometimes happen is that they stop being... Um, groups for accountability and keeping one another up to a certain standard and they become commiseration groups um, where after a couple of meetings where everything's sort of going okay the not to put too fine a point in it but the standards basically start to slip and what happens is instead of being encouraged to step up to the plate and grow in maturity everyone who's meeting together starts to realize well everybody else is failing to stand up to this temptation and it also almost becomes the thing that we joke about you know how, how did you slip up this week i wish we wouldn't talk about slipping up when what we mean is sin uh, how did you slip up this week uh, and you know commiserate 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 pray a little bit go home nothing changes so it's not that I want to discourage these kinds of accountability relationships or groups or anything like that. I just want to alert you to what works well about them and what works badly about them. They're great when they're actually about accountability. They're great when they're actually about the right kind of rebuke and challenge. They're not great when they're about commiseration or lowering the standard or basically normalizing the process of succumbing to the temptation. A multitude of counsellors, there's wisdom and safety, but um, the counsel of fools is folly. And fools in this context means somebody who doesn't have a disciplined and prudent life. And so the worst case scenario is it's a little bit like what happens when you have somebody who's a, um, a petty criminal who starts mixing with a whole bunch of other people who are more serious criminals and ends up being more seriously criminalized themselves. It's like the worst kind of pathology for that person, the worst thing you could do for them sometimes. So accountability groups, yes, good, but be careful. Make sure there's somebody there who's actually maybe a few years older than you, maybe uh, your dad or uh, maybe your wife or your husband, or somebody who's not just going to commiserate and say, yeah, pat you on the head and it's okay because you've messed up again, but don't worry, Jesus loves you. Yeah, Jesus loves you. Yeah, there's forgiveness at the cross. But the cross leads us to repentance and a life of Christ-likeness. And we need somebody in those accountability relationships who's going to do that for us. Number four, 
Um, and this is just a, a practical uh, observation, um, which curiously has been confirmed um, by, I mentioned uh, in previous episodes, uh, psychological research. Um, but it, this has been confirmed by psychiatrists. Temptation, when it feels really strong, only tends to last for a very short time. Um, let me give you an instance of this where I first encountered this insight, which I think is profoundly helpful. A friend of mine works for a charity in the UK which uh, basically trains drivers of buses and metro trains, underground trains and other trains and uh, public uh, uh, operatives in those kinds of uh, businesses, trains those people to try to dissuade people from committing suicide. Tragically, on just on London's transport system alone, there's something like one suicide or suicide attempt per day. And it's, you can imagine all the situations, all those railroad tracks, hundreds of miles of railway, bridges, roads, all these kinds of things. And frequently, uh, people who work for London Transport find themselves uh, encountering somebody who is so desperate that they feel driven to this terrible scenario of even considering taking their own life. And so this friend of mine works for a charity that trains those uh, drivers and other staff on London Underground and London Transport to try and counsel those uh, prospective suicide victims to persuade them not to take their own lives. And one of the things this friend of mine told me is you basically just have to keep them talking for half an hour. If somebody feels desperate, that desperate, so intensely in despair that they feel like taking their own life, within half an hour the intensity of the feeling will have subsided. Now I'm very sure that there is a whole bunch of complexity in that whole area of counselling that is far beyond that simple summary. It must be a incredibly complex and emotionally very demanding arena in which to counsel people. And somebody who's an expert will be able to say far, far more than that. But that simple nugget stuck with me. And you may have heard something like that yourself. Just the advice that if you find somebody who's desperately thinking about putting an end to it all, although it doesn't put an end to it all, does it? If you can just keep them talking, you have a chance of saving their lives. Now, why the half hour? Well, this is really striking. It turns out that we're not actually constitutionally capable of sustaining that kind of intensity of emotion indefinitely. And that is true for all emotions. Those emotions of despair. Now, clearly, the next day, that person may still be despairing. But they probably won't be suicidal. We know it in relation to other uh, sinful temptations, sinful anger, for example. All of us have at various points had a flare-up, an internal explosion of fury and anger at something. Maybe not all of us, maybe that's not a temptation that you've ever had. But I suspect, actually, for most of us, all of, we've had some kind of really intense frustration or anger at something for a while. And what you notice is, that subsides, you can't actually sustain that intensity of emotion for more than, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 minutes. I don't know whether it's exactly half an hour, but it's that kind of order. 
Now so it is with lustful temptations and any other kind of temptation. When we feel those kinds of sinful temptations, it is not the case that we have to bear up under that really intense feeling indefinitely. You probably have to stand up to it for half an hour. In which case, go do something else. Specific, well-defined, demanding, mentally absorbing, physically absorbing, something that takes you out of that situation for about half an hour. Go for a run, go lift some weights, go and clear the kitchen, go and spring clean um, your bedroom. Do some, do anything, whatever it will take to get you out of the situation where that feeling is particularly intense until that temptation subsides. It's a very practical insight which has to do with how we're made by God. We're not made to sustain intense emotions indefinitely but only for a short period of time. So grit your teeth and fight it by seeking something else in the meantime. And then finally, um, I want to talk about uh, another, uh, I think, biblical insight in relation to fighting sin and temptation. I mentioned this at a recent Bible study. I want to say a word or two about it in this context. Reverse engineer the sin or the temptation into whichever virtue it is a perversion of. Let me just think about that, what I mean about that by that for a second. All sin is perverted or twisted goodness from a metaphysical standpoint there's no such thing as absolute pure evil uh, everything created by God is good and so what evil is is not a thing so to speak but a twisting of something that was made good into something bad and evil in the metaphysical sense is like that actually all sin is like that as well if you think your way through the Ten Commandments, and this is how I sometimes explain this, you can see actually how, in many cases it's just obvious, um, how breaking any one of the commandments is actually a kind of twisted form of wanting to be righteous, but it's twisted so it becomes sinful. So, uh, for example, the Fourth Commandment, um, seven, six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work. Well. Breaking the Sabbath then is a twisting of the godly human desire to work. Um, what do you think then about uh, the uh, seventh commandment, the commandment do not commit adultery? Well, what's going on with that? It's clearly, it's a twisting and a distortion of the godly, God-given desire for intimacy with your wife or your husband. And so what this means is if we can start to think about sins as a twisted version of a good thing, what we could try to do, if we're willing to think hard about it, is to work backwards, try and figure out what is the good thing that this thing, this sin, is a twisted version of. What is lust and pornography use in particular a twisted version of? And of course, the answer is fairly straightforward. It's it's a twisting of the perfect and God-given gift of marriage and physical and sexual intimacy that belongs within that relationship between a man and a woman. What happens in pornography is the twisting and undoing and distortion of all the different facets of that relationship between a man and a woman and it becomes depersonalized and so on and so forth. Now, 
in the second episode in this series, I talked about uh, some of these aspects of what pornography use is and does. And what this insight highlights is that one way to fight against the temptation to use pornography is to seek to reinstate all the things that pornography use displaces. So think about it for a second. Um, pornography use makes no demands on us in quite the way that marriage does. Marriage places demands that we be gentle and gracious and deal lovingly with this person that we're um, uh, married to and care for them in their vulnerability and, and work hard to provide for them if we're a man or work hard as a, a woman, a, a mother and a wife within the home if you're a woman. Uh, marriage places all those demands on us alongside the joy of sexual intimacy. And so what can we do to fight against the temptation to lust and pornography? Well, what we could do is to reinstate in our lives all those other things. If you're a, let me give you a concrete example. If you're a, a husband struggling with this sinful temptation to pornography, well, reinstate self-consciously as clearly as you can all of the things that your marriage ought to contain. Gentleness with your wife, um, care for her practical needs, time spent with her, get back to doing date nights if you ever did date nights and if you never did then start. Um, taking responsibility for providing for your family, working hard, working the extra hours if necessary, taking all that uh, um, in the appropriate proportions depending on what the demands on your time and so on are but seeking to if we seek to put back into our relationships as husbands say all the other things that ought to be there in relationship with our wives we'll find that pornography kind of doesn't fit anymore because what pornography encourages is absolving ourselves from all those other responsibilities to put it another way um, where sexual intimacy belongs is within marriage in a network of other God-given responsibilities. If, then, we reinstate all those other responsibilities and start working hard at them, we'll find that porn use and lust don't really fit so well. Something analogous applies if you're single and uh, therefore, at uh, one level or another, uh, contemplating the possibility of marriage in the future. You want to be thinking about how you can prepare for marriage, and clearly there's a lot involved in that, something we want to talk about another time, but the preparation is minimally uh, preparation to uh, work well in a fruitful job, to be able to raise children, or to be a great mum, and to understand what that will mean in terms of work, whether inside the home or outside the home, in different areas of your life. Um, the godliness and maturity and grace and gentleness and good humour and understanding that's necessary to be a great husband and a great wife, the basic Christ-likeness that all of us need, those things are priorities for you. Those things are, are what a good future husband, a great future wife, will need to be working on now. And to the extent that we're self-consciously striving towards them, Pornography doesn't, doesn't find a place in there. It's like a piece of the puzzle that doesn't fit. Because it doesn't fit, it doesn't belong there. And so to draw all that together, basically what we're trying to do is to rebuild a life that's honouring to Christ and mature and faithful and wise in every area of our being so that this 
sin which has the potential to cause so much damage to us and to those around us just doesn't have a place there. Okay, I think that's long enough on those practical issues. As I said before, if you want to talk personally and confidentially about uh, any of these uh, practical issues, I encourage you to reach out, give us a call, uh, let me know. Um, please don't do nothing if this is a temptation for you. Uh, this is going to be the last podcast in this particular series on this subject, but it won't be the last time we talk about it because it is something we need to talk about. It's something we need to deal with, and it may be for you something you need to start dealing with now, and if it is, please do so. But I think that'll do us for this episode. Until next time, God bless, and bye for now.